So we're in Jonah chapter 3, and I'll just read verse 1 to start us off. I'll, I'll read most of the verses of the chapter as, as we go. Jonah 3 verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So here, if you're using the handout, you'll see on the bottom of your handout the outline. We covered all the other stuff last time, so we're just working our way through those last two lines of the outline of the book. Uh, Line 3, verses 1 to 10, Jonah preached in Nineveh, and there were mass conversions. So the results of Jonah's uh, preaching are the high point of this whole book. Never again has the world seen anything like the response that we're about to study in chapter 3, the response to Jonah's preaching in the ancient city called Nineveh. The first unique thing is that it began with God calling just one missionary to Nineveh, our man Jonah. Usually missionaries are sent out in teams. Uh, We even studied recently how Jesus sent them out two by two, duo teams. This is just one man. The second unique thing is that God called Jonah after Jonah seemed to have disqualified himself from future service as a missionary prophet. If we were evaluating the first two chapters we studied last time, it should shock us in verse 1 that God came to Jonah the second time saying the same thing, that you're, you're my designated missionary to Nineveh. It comes as something of a surprise, this mercy from God to Jonah to call him a second time in in verse 1. So um, let me say this before I forget. We put these curtains up, these wrinkled curtains, uh, because if it's a bright, sunny day and you're sitting in a certain spot, I look like a silhouette and it's distracting. So it's not quite as bright today. We might not need them, but we're getting into this new habit now of putting our wrinkled curtains up just for this class. So after this, we'll take them down, roll them up. It's just a spring-loaded curtain rod. Four of you are wondering, the rest of you are saying, what are you talking about? So now you all know. So let me put this question to you. We're talking about Jonah and and his qualifications to be sent as a preacher after what happened in chapters 1 and 2. So put the question to you. Would you call Jonah a second time? Assuming that you had other prophets at hand, you had other options, i just remind you of a couple things about Jonah. He had reached a point in which he would rather die than to preach to Nineveh, as God commanded him to do. I'll just remind you that this happened when Jonah was requesting to be thrown overboard of a ship. Some of the sailors probably were, I think it's safe to assume, Ninevites themselves, and he said this to them, throw me overboard. I'll just also remind you that God gave Jonah spiritual blessings, such as, rather than being swallowed by the waves in the storm, to be swallowed by a fish, which sounds like a curse, but actually it saved his life, and then within the whale to be kept alive, and even to brought to a point of repentance, as we saw in chapter 2, his prayer, most of chapter 2 is Jonah's prayer from inside the belly of the fish, underneath the waves. That God gave Jonah these spiritual blessings Maybe you could also include in there the blessing of God speaking to the fish at the end of chapter 2, the great fish, the whale, so that the fish would return Jonah to land. We usually call that vomiting, uh, taking something that's in the belly of and uh, um, expelling that back out. Um, God commanded his great fish to return Jonah to land. Why isn't that the end? Why there even exists chapters 3 and 4? The end. No one could expect more from God. He brought him to a point of repentance. He saved his life physically. We understand that he could still be considered a child of God. Why doesn't Jonah 3 verse 1 read, God then said to Jonah, go home. (laughs) What would you write as you write the beginning of chapter 3, knowing what you know? Your story, you get to play God for a moment. Just in terms of expectation, we should really be shocked. I'm trying to help you be shocked by chapter 3, verse 1. The repeat command of God here in chapter 3, 1 is the same as the initial command of God 
to Jonah back in chapter 1, verse 2. If you compare chapter 1, 2 to chapter 3, 1, you'll see that it's a repeat. Nearly word for word. So, what do we see Jonah's responses this time that's different? We go to verse 3, chapter 3, verse 3. So, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Yay! <laughs> it's a very different response than we saw from Jonah in chapter 1, right? And the rest of verse 3 I'll read now. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. What is the difference? It's not Jonah. It's not the people of Nineveh. It's not the sailors. It's not the storm. It's not the waves. It's not the whale. It's the word of the Lord. Look at verse 3. Now, instead of rebelling, Jonah was walking, quote, according to what? According to the word of the Lord. It's the word of the Lord to Jonah that changed him. It's the message of God, the word of God, the very word of God is what changed him. Now, instead of rebelling against the word of the Lord, he's walking according to the word of the Lord. We're supposed to notice that. That's the tremendous difference. God is showing us something about God. God is showing us something about his mercy. This man, Jonah, does not deserve it. And God is showing us something about his sovereignty. He's able to turn Jonah's heart. We get this explained in Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's through God's word alone that God brings blessing and opens the closed, rebellious hearts of us, uh, just like Jonah, as we sat in, in darkness. So going on to verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now we were told in verse 3 that it's a, a three days journey across the city. They're trying to give us measurements of the size of the city that we can understand this many centuries later. So if you, if you say to somebody, how many dollars was it in Jesus' lifetime? It makes it's really hard to calculate or understand. But if you say a day's wages, a year's wages, a month's wages, then we can kind of compare and get a sense. That's all you want is the sense, a big picture sense. So a big picture sense is you got it. If you're walking, three days journey to cross the city. I think the size of like Mexico City. Pretty big, three days journey, large city. That's the whole point. Now in verse 4, we're told he went one day's journey in. He didn't even reach the middle of the city. He just kind of like... Went for a while. It's like, this is good enough. <laughs> right? <laughs> this is good enough. And then what does he say? This is amazing how verse 4 is five words in Hebrew. It takes eight words in English, which is fine. I don't want to get into whole translation stuff. You understand how languages are different. And all it is is pure judgment. Pure judgment. I mean, it's not a very impressive message anyway. It's inexcusably brief and it's just straight-up judgment, right? Can you imagine a missionary that you send out going to a major world city, standing in the city square, and saying through a bullhorn five times, warning, you're all goners. Warning, you're all goners. Warn I mean, it's all he said. Would you be proud of your missionary now? He's going and telling them you're all dead. You're goners. All he says here is, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So we have a runaway prophet who God has got a hold of him through his word, and he's, he's saying truth, but he's not filling out how the people should respond. He should be saying the warning, how they need to repent, and so on. But the message of Jonah is the message of God, and God greatly blessed it immediately. So again, we're seeing the sovereignty of God. How could that message be a blessing? <laughs> Why didn't they just lop his head off? Why didn't they just ignore him? How could that message be a blessing? Sovereign hand of God. How could that message result in the 
Ninevites responding through um, repentance and receiving salvation, the mercy of God. So we see the mercy of God and sovereignty of God. Those two things we keep seeing in every verse, in every page, in every chapter. It was the word of God. It's not the words of a man. Not the words of Jonah. He is God's spokesman and he's traveling according to the word of the Lord. He's speaking according to the word of the Lord. And so God caused a genuine revival in the city that spread to everyone. Listen to the incredible result in verse 5. We're told this on purpose so that we understand the scene. Verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. It doesn't say they believed Jonah. It says they believed God. They called for a fast, you know, just cease from eating because something is so serious. This is more important than lunch, more important than supper. They called a fast and put on sackcloth, which was their ancient itchy clothing to show that we're in mourning and grieving. And from the greatest of them to the least of them, So it means that every senator, every high government leader, every high religious leader, business leader, the greatest people, like the most important, as it were, the most influential, powerful, however you want to put it, the greatest of them, we understand that, and the least of them, the people who, why should they care? And yet, they do, all of them, top to bottom, left to right, every person. What did the people believe? Or I should say it this way, who did the people believe? Not Jonah, they believed God. How do you explain that? If you take this literally and you believe what's actually being told to us here, how do you explain that? What's your worldview that gets you to understand what's happening? A city full of hardened sinners hearing minimal preaching, and I think that's being generous, it's nearly irresponsible preaching, minimal preaching, of warning and judgment from God's word and responding instantly with faith in God, calling for a fast, putting on the sign of repentance, which is the sackcloth. How do you explain that? I believe it's only explained in this way that Jonah's obedience was followed by an outpouring of God's power. Now, I've, I've put some suspicion around his obedience, right? He only traveled a day in, three days journey. He didn't even reach the center of town. And five words, I've put some suspicion. And yet, you have to say, in terms of categories, it was obedience. He did go to Nineveh, and he did say God's words. Okay, so that measure of obedience, the result is the outpouring of God's power. Even, it was already hinted at in verse 5 where we read the um, greatest of them to the least of them, but now it's filled out that Jonah's message reached the palace, the king of, of Nineveh, the mayor, or however you want to say it. Uh, here, here it uses the word king, the leader of the whole city. Read now from verses 6 to 9, what happened then. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh Quote, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, verse 8, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Remember violence, we'll come back to that. Verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish, end quote, verses 6 to 9. Imagine yourself at the ordination and installation of a missionary. And we all pray together for success in this missionary's ministry, wherever he and his family are going. How would you like to hear a month in, two months in, ten years in, anything close to the report that we just got. The whole country has come to its knees. The king himself and his nobles issued public governmental decrees saying, don't even feed the animals because we all need to seek God's face. Maybe he will show mercy to us in our sins. I don't know how you get a better missionary report than these verses 6 through 9. How we long for this to happen in our city how we long for this to happen anywhere that we send missionaries. Our own nation. 
that after the repentance of the people, we read verse 10, when God saw what they did, which is what? Utter repentance. How they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. How do you explain that? Would that be your response? If you were king for a day, if you were God for a day, would you accept that and change what you were planning in terms of judgment and destruction? The Nineveh that God had planned to destroy was proud, wicked, violent. Again, I want to come back to that violent thing as a relevance point for us. And luxurious. Nineveh was all about itself. But that city suddenly ceased to be those things. If you measure it now, you can't say it's proud. Even the king and his nobles have taken off their royal robes and put on sackcloth and find themselves on the ground before God, seeking his face by name, uh, his face and seeking him by name. On the ground in ashes. You can't say that they're proud anymore. You can't say they're wicked anymore, they're repenting of it. You can't say they're violent anymore. Crime stopped. You can't even say they're luxurious anymore. What might they be willing to do with the money now, given their heart status? From the king to the lowest servant. It's not just, well, I guess we've got to do this. The king's up to some crazy you know, new situation now. Whatever the king says. No, they, they were all genuinely repentant, down to the lowest servant. And so what God had threatened against that Nineveh That Nineveh didn't exist anymore. So why would God issue a fulfillment of that judgment warning to a Nineveh that didn't exist anymore? Now the Nineveh was repentant. Used to be wicked, now it's repentant. Used to be proud, now it's humbled. God had never threatened that Nineveh. He only threatened the former Nineveh. Nineveh became a different city. Instantly. It made an instant moral change. An instant spiritual change. Coming to God in repentance, which as you know, repentance includes actually changing your behavior. Changing your words, changing your attitude. Not just saying the words in a religious posture. Old things had suddenly passed away. All things became new. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 describes the changeover this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And some would translate that. He becomes part of a whole new created order. We enter the new kingdom, right? the kingdom of God. And then going on in 2 Corinthians 5, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Corinth, as you know, was called Sin City. But God was building his church in the middle of sinful city, Corinth, so that he could say about his people within that city, The old has gone, the new has come. But even Corinth was not the full-scale, top-to-bottom, left-to-right conversions like we see in Nineveh. I was just bringing that in to show the the difference of conversion. Now you might ask, what about Nineveh's past sins? The, The past sins of Corinth, the past sins of Nineveh. The the. The past sins of ourselves, you know, to (laughs) realize the relevance of what we're studying. What about that? Well, God didn't pour out disaster in the time of Jonah and Nineveh or in the time of Paul and, and Corinth. Instead, God poured out disaster for those sins once for all in the time of Jesus on the cross in Jerusalem. So that's the answer. That that's the gospel understanding. That God took all the past sins, all the evils of all of his people in all the cities across the world, call it Nineveh, call it Corinth, call it Milwaukee, and God put those sins on one place, one man, the Lord Jesus, his son on Calvary's cross. And that's what was necessary in order for God to relent of the disaster on Nineveh. Without the cross, this change doesn't happen. Without the coming cross and the place where God's righteous wrath and judgment against those sins would be taken care of, he could not turn from destroying those people and their past sins. So it was a good question, and this is the gospel answer. It's necessary, in order for God to relent of the disaster on Nineveh, and because the cross is coming, it's necessary for God not to destroy Nineveh. God doesn't 
issue a judgment twice. The sins are either on them, and the judgment on them, or the sins are transferred to Jesus, and the judgment is on Jesus. You don't both issue God's wrath on Jesus and issue God's wrath on ancient Nineveh. It's been transferred, so God is just that way. God's relenting in the face of citizens of Nineveh repenting is a pointer to Jesus Christ, the justice of God, and the mercy of God meet together at that cross. So God renders true justice across the whole history of the world, and yet he provides us sinners with unmerited salvation because Jesus took our sins and paid for them in full. Our sins are covered only by the blood of Jesus, but it's more than that. Our repentance and the repentance of those in Corinth and the repentance of those in Nineveh are all possible because God the Son decided to take our judgment and God the Father put our judgment on him. So our turning from sin must be a turning to Jesus. It's only through Jesus that we have forgiveness. It's not simply correcting thyself. I mean, turning from sin is only half. It's turning from sin unto God and uh, trusting in his way of cleansing and receiving his righteousness. Um, It's only through Jesus we have righteousness before God. It's only by faith in Jesus we have safety from his judgment, but also um, the right record of Christ. So how do we get this sort of turnaround in our city and our nation? I mean, what would be a, a takeaway lesson for missions now? Uh, well, number one, faithful preaching of God's word, that it's God's word that is the, the one weapon that we have. His, his message has to be given and heard in the power of his spirit. There's no greater need in America. There's no greater need in any other nation of the world than to hear a clear teaching of the timeless truths of the word of God. His gospel of grace to sinners is the core main thing. If we want blessing in our country, if we want blessing in this world, if we want blessing in our churches, our homes, our schools, our community, it will be by the teachings of this one book, shared clearly without being watered down, without apology. So number two, people have to believe God. Now we saw that in this verse where after um, Jonah gives his five-word sermon, the the people of Nineveh believed God, verse 5. People of Nineveh believed God. So that's the second step. The word of God would have to be preached as step one. Step two is people would have to believe God. Don't believe it because I say it. Don't believe it because your missionary says it. Believe it because you're convinced this is the word from the creator God. It's always that simple. Paul says it this way in Romans 10, 17, talking about how how to send missionaries and change the world. Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So people have to believe that it's, it's Christ speaking. And third, people have to take the next step. Appropriate actions for people who now believe. They believe God and then what? They went back to all their sinning. You business as usual the rest of the day? No. Right after that, they called for a fast, put on sackcloth every single person in the city. So appropriate actions that follow upon believing that God himself has given a message, faith takes action. So once the people of Nineveh became believers, they looked at all that they were doing and became convicted everywhere they looked. This place is a complete mess, right? They were overcome with grief for their sins, what they were doing, what they were doing to each other, how they were grieving God. They called for a fast. It's a stop eating and focus on what's more important than eating and drinking, getting right with God. They put on different clothing, which more lined up with their soul's condition. Their clothes of grieving and mourning showed that they had offended God, they understood that they offended God, and they were deeply concerned about that and the damage that they had caused to one another. The book of Hebrews, there's chapter 11, we call it the the hall of faith. Lists out person after person who by faith, by faith, by faith, It's the people who believe. But you notice something else as you read through Hebrews 11. The people who believe also take action. Uh, Abel believed God and offered proper sacrifice. Noah believed God and built an ark. Abraham believed God and left his hometown to go to the land that God would show him. The whole chapter of um, Hebrews 11 goes on like that. Because there's faith, there's follow-up action. 
So in each person, belief is followed by specific efforts and action steps. So that's the third thing. The word of God has to be preached. People have to believe God, and then people have to take appropriate actions following on believing in God. And the fourth step is specific repentance. Specific repentance. That's why they would put on sackcloth. That's why they would sit in ashes. They would have to contemplate the whole of their lives. What has been happening here in Nineveh? What has been going on here? And how does God view what has been going on here? We're so steeped in our sins, we can't even see it correctly. So let's pause, seek God, and ask him to help us see it correctly so that we can cease from certain wrong behaviors and replace them with correct and right behaviors. So verse 8. This is the specific repentance. Um, Let's go ahead and read uh, verse 8 again. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. So there is specificity as far as the king, his decree goes, that there's a recognition that the behavior is wrong and everyone is called on to turn from it. And again, I've mentioned it a couple times, now let's go there with this word violence. Does that sound familiar to you? The relevance of the ancient word of God, does it surprise you that we find in Jonah something that we're reeling with? This weekend, another shooting. Um, If you define a shooting as four persons hit with bullets or more, not killed, just hit with bullets, then so far in this calendar year, 2023, there's more than 580 in this country. That's just one-person shootings, couple-person shootings. It's just the, I'm not even talking about other murders (laughs) and the wars and so on. Violence. And we're not even talking about domestic violence and other sorts of things that don't reach that level of class of being classified as mass shootings. Just there's all kinds of other violence, but just that one category undoes us. We've had 20 children murdered in Milwaukee alone in this calendar year. Not hit by a car, an accident, something happened. Murdered. So the, the, the violence stands out to us as you read this through. The king of Nineveh says to his people, let everyone turn from the violence. We could say amen, right? What the, the need for each citizen of the city to turn from their violence would be specific repentance. Ceasing from that wrong behavior, replacing it with correct behavior. And then, you know, we, we have the beauty of the larger catechism and shorter catechism, which explains what is forbidden and what is commanded in each of the commandments. So as you get uh, to the commandment, you shall not murder, there's lots of explaining of ways that we're to support life and help one another. That's correct behavior to replace the wrong behavior, putting lives at risk or worse, taking lives. So whether it's violence, then lots of other sins in Nineveh as well, such as selfishness, pride, sexual sin, lack of love for brothers and sisters in Christ, laziness, greed, whatever other specific sins, they would need to turn from them specifically also. It's not enough to simply say in vague terms, dear God, our whole city is sorry for everything. Amen. Not enough. God expects the specificity of repentance as we come to him. To be blessed of God to come to know him fully, each person does this with our walk with God specifically. Um, One more example, what about stealing? If someone in Nineveh were stealing, what would their repentance then look like under this time of fasting, under this order from the king, under this God-generated, word of God, prophet, preaching, missionary-generated time of repentance What would that thief then think and do differently? Paul tells us clearly, years later, in Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal. You might say, yeah, right, sure, got it. Cut it out. There's a whole lot more, listen. Let the thief no longer steal, 
but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that we have something to share with anyone in need. That's five huge steps that go in the opposite direction from stealing. You take a person who's willing to take your stuff, and now he's willing to go and work hard with his own hands and then give you some of what he earned fair and square with his own energy. That's more the opposite of a thief, right? When a thief is willing to give away his hard-earned money to someone in need, then you know God has changed his heart. Do you know any thieves? <laughs> I mean, they just don't get there, you know, um, on their own. It takes God's intervention. So those would be the four steps as we reach the end of chapter three. Faithful preaching, people have to believe God, uh, appropriate actions for believing people, including specific repentance. We turn to chapter four. Um, on your handout, it reads, God is more merciful than his prophet. So chapter four. The book of Jonah is a story about God. And I know we have favorites that we tell children, and this is one of them. You know, you've got Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel in the fiery furnace. You've got Jonah in the whale, uh, Jesus on the boat. Right? These are some of our favorite stories. I get that. And as you take a look at the text itself, actually, what you find is that there's significance to these stories. They're, they're meant to attract children. And as we, as adults, are meant to study them again and see them not through the eyes of children, but see them through the eyes of adults and understand what God is saying to us. Through these enjoyable, moving stories, there's a lot of significance. So the book of Jonah is a story about God. And specifically, it's a story about God's mercy and sovereignty, as we've been saying. So how do we see that here in chapter 4? Well, review where we are. The mercy of God to Jonah who was given a command and rebelled. The mercy of God to Jonah included a storm, a great fish, the repentance of Jonah inside the fish, which is itself a gift from God, and the second commissioning as a prophet to Jonah. Secondly, we saw the mercy of God to the sailors. They started out as pagans, worshiping each their own false gods, if you remember. But by the end, they were worshiping the Lord by name, the Lord God using his covenant name, Yahweh, Jehovah, that they had learned only through Jonah, and by offering the Lord God sacrifices from the boat and vowing to make whatever sacrifices were missing once they got off the boat, vows to the true God. That's all mercy from God to the sailors. Third, we already saw God's mercy to the citizens of Nineveh, an especially wicked city. But God used the preaching of Jonah to bring revival to Nineveh. What is that if it's not the mercy of God? So even the king came off his throne and sat in ashes in repentance, God's mercy postponed his judgment to Nineveh, prophesied by Jonah. So with all this mercy of God being poured out, how would you expect the fourth chapter, the last chapter of this little book, to present Jonah? He ought to be rejoicing in the mercy of God, correct? Yay! Mercy to me, I was a goner. Mercy to Nineveh, they were goners. Mercy to the sailors, they were goners. Mercy all around. Let's all sing. Let's all celebrate, right? Why do we not have that as we turn the page to chapter 4? What's going on with our prophet Jonah still? With all this mercy being poured out, where is his rejoicing? Get ready to be shocked. I'm saying all this so that you interpret the, the next verses appropriately. It's how it would strike the original readers is what I'm trying to re reenact for you in our little mini theater here. Uh, chapter, chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. I'm sorry, what? What displeased Jonah now? What does he have to be displeased about? We just described the greatest missionary success in the history of the world. It greatly displeased Jonah, I mean, exceedingly, we're told. And who's Jonah angry with? Angry with God. At the beginning, the book of Jonah was about Jonah and God. Then the sailors in the city got into the story. And now that the sailors in the city of Nineveh had mercy, Jonah's mission is accomplished, we're back to just God and Jonah. And we're back to Jonah being angry with God. And it's clearly an attitude problem in this last chapter that's similar to the attitude problem we saw in the first chapter, 
Remember chapter 1, verse 2, God had told Jonah to go to Nineveh, but in chapter 1, verse 3, we read, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. That's why I put a map on the back of your handout. Tarshish is a completely different place than where he was supposed to go, obviously opposing God, resisting God, fleeing as far as he could from God, angry at God. Not just fleeing to the wrong place, but it literally says, from the presence of the Lord. So we don't let Jonah wiggle out of this. He's rebelling. Bad attitude, we could summarize by saying, right? Well, it seems that Jonah's bad attitude is back here in chapter 4. Maybe it was never settled. Uh, Verses 2 and 3 give us the x-ray of Jonah that we never had before. Now we get a slice of his heart, right? A a window into what Jonah's heart is. Verse 2, Jonah 4, 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said? When I was yet in my country. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah's angry. We're told that a couple times. And Jonah did what God wanted, but God did not do what Jonah wanted. (laughs) He stood up and told the Ninevites that judgment of God was coming in 40 days, but it didn't come. Now he looks like a liar. He looks like a fool, right? He felt betrayed by God himself. Jonah had no care for the people of Nineveh. He didn't. He should have celebrated their deliverance, their massive turning and repenting. But Jonah actually was miffed that God had not wiped Nineveh off the face of the earth as he stood in city square to say was going to happen. The only way Jonah would have been happy, we're warranted to conclude, would be if God had destroyed the city. How do we accurately understand the attitude problem of our prophet Jonah, and why is this before us? God wants us to see something important. Jonah tried to explain away his disobedience. He refused to go to Nineveh, but it was God's fault. Let me tell you why, he says to God. You would give them mercy. What a terrible explanation. I refuse to do what you said to me because you would show them mercy. But it shows an attitude problem that Jonah explained. Secondly, Jonah tried to blame God again, trying to show that Jonah was right and God was wrong. God said to preach judgment and destruction, but when it came down to it, God lied, God reneged, God backed out, he didn't give judgment, he gave mercy. So Jonah's right, God is wrong. See how dark that is? Thirdly, Jonah asked for death again. What is with this death wish in our prophet? It sure reads like that. It's like the first time when he asked the sailors to throw him overboard. Now, after obeying and preaching in Nineveh, Jonah still would rather die. It's a warning we can obey on the outside, but on the inside, our disobedience is no different from our, our obedience is no different from disobedience if on the inside we didn't want to do it. So on the outside, if you will, Jonah went to to Nineveh and preached the correct words. Truncated and, you know. But the correct words, the word of God. Forty days, God will destroy. But on the inside, Jonah wanted Nineveh to die, not to live. That's disobedience. Now that Nineveh lived, Jonah wanted himself to die and not to live. More disobedience. Jonah should have been rejoicing. What is the block here? What is preventing Jonah from rejoicing? He was instrumental in the hand of God to bring the gift of spiritual life to thousands of people, we could assume, in one of the greatest revivals in the history of the world. He knew about God's grace and mercy. He experienced God's mercy himself, but he resented God giving mercy to Nineveh. God God would have preferred that God would give to Nineveh wrath. uh, um, Jonah preferred that God would give Nineveh wrath and death and destruction. So what is the issue? The issue is Jonah wants his own will, not God's will. 
It's just that simple. He wants what he wants, not what God wants. Jonah wants his own way, <clears throat> not God's way. In terms of the mission of preaching to Nineveh, in terms of his own life, he wants his own outcome and result, not God's outcome and result. He wanted the sailors to throw him overboard so he'd be done with all this and be dead. He didn't get that way. He's still alive. <laughs> he didn't get his way. He wanted Nineveh to be blown off the map. They're still alive and they're repenting. They're being blessed. So now he wants to die again, and he can't die. <laughs> he wants his own way, not God's way. That's the issue. He's rebelling against God. He opposed God initially. He, uh, God had pursued Jonah, and the prayer from the belly of the fish was, was genuine. But we still have genuine Jonah stuck in a sinful attitude as before. God was unwilling to rejoice that God's outcome was the uh, salvation of the people. Jonah's living a double life. I'm not saying he's not a believer, not questioning his conversion. I'm saying that he's a man of God stuck in a problem, stuck in a sin. He's a double life. On the outside, he's preaching God's word. As a missionary, on the inside, he's angry with God for making him do it, for granting mercy to a foreign city. Jonah had forgotten God's mercy, his mercy to himself, his mercy to sailors, his mercy to the city. Jonah should have died inside the great fish. Jonah had renounced God. He, God should renounce Jonah in return. <clears throat> that would be fair, right? But God gave Jonah what Jonah didn't deserve. It's better than fair. First, he gave Jonah the grace of true repentance, true prayer, true reconciliation. And second, God gave Jonah a second chance to fulfill his true calling. Uh, God called Jonah a second time to be a missionary to Nineveh and bring them life-giving word. And Jonah didn't know God as well as Jonah thought he knew God. Jonah was a Jew and the Jews had the scriptures, so in addition, Jonah was a prophet, and the prophets had direct revelations from God. If anybody knew God, it was Jonah, right? But did Jonah know God? Jonah did not know God well enough to grieve over his own sin the way that God grieved over Jonah's sin. And the second part is that Jonah didn't know God well enough to rejoice as God rejoices at the repentance of one sinner. One sinner. Luke 15, Jesus told the wonderful parable we call the prodigal son. When the son returned, the father did what? Rejoiced. But the older brother would not rejoice and sulked instead. Why? Because the older brother felt cheated by his brother, now felt cheated by his father, for what the older brother thought that the older brother deserved. All of these years I slave here, earning and earning and earning, works and works and works. And you give him mercy because he's out there spending your money, which is my money, and he comes home and you throw the giant party for him. The repentance of the prodigal was cause for the father to rejoice with abandon. The older brother should have loved the prodigal the same way. The older brother didn't have the heart of the father for the prodigal. The older brother should have rejoiced at the repentance of the prodigal. That's exactly where Jonah is. He didn't have the heart of the father for the repentant sinners in Nineveh. He should have rejoiced with a heart full of rejoicing. Peter, who was himself a prodigal for a moment, right? later wrote in 2 Peter 3.9 that God is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 2 Peter 3.9. Peter was explaining the delay of God's final day of judgment. That's what's going on in 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter says God's mercy is bigger than God's judgment. Why has Jesus not yet returned? Why has the end of the world not yet come? Because God has plans to call to faith those who are currently dead in their sins and living wild, sinful lives. And just as we're glad that Jesus didn't return before we believed in him, so we rejoice that Jesus has not yet returned so that others will believe in him and we invest heavily in the missionary endeavor. God is a God of judgment. Judgment is coming. There is a hell. There is damnation. The whole thing's real. But bigger than that, God is a God of mercy. And his word says mercy triumphs over judgment. 
there is a heaven. And it will be populated with people from every tribe, every nation, every people, every language, including people from Nineveh, including people from here. We need to know God for who he truly is and rejoice when he says to rejoice. Jonah had not yet come to know God for who God really is, had he? So chapter four, God teaches Jonah who God is. And God does so by asking Jonah questions, sort of like God asked questions of Job at the end of Job. It's teaching in the form of questions, kind of like we call catechism. So here's number one, question number one, verse four. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? In other words, do you have a right to be angry? Is this righteous anger, Jonah? So God and Jonah are looking at the same situation. They're looking at what just happened in Nineveh. And they have two different perspectives. Jonah's angry. God is pleased. Which one has the proper perspective, God is asking Jonah. (laughs) He's challenging Jonah to discern who's right, an angry, sulking prophet or the great, holy, merciful God of the universe. Just a little quiz for you, Jonah. Who's correct on this? But Jonah didn't change his thinking. Instead, Jonah became more angry. And he left the city. Verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. What's going on here? Jonah thinks God might destroy it after all. Watch for the fire from heaven. Brimstone coming. (laughs) I'm going to sit up on this hill where it's safe. What is going on? It's a private retreat. There's, there's no shelters, no homes in Nineveh. Think about it. They're repentant. They're alive to God. This is the man who's the missionary that brought them the gospel. Every one of them would put him up in their house. Right? Jonah's not interested. He's despising the people, still hoping God would judge them. He established his own little domain, his own little separatist movement. He only would have peace in his own terms. He's not content in the body. He desires to be apart from it. He desires to be apart from God. He wanted autonomy. He didn't want God to be his king. Jonah wanted to be his own king. So he became a spectator. Verse 5 tells us he sat down to see what would happen to the city. Who said he could punch out and be a spectator? God sent him to preach. Preach to Nineveh. (laughs) Now would God give up on Jonah? Now would you give up on Jonah? Verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Uh, No, God did not give up on Jonah. God shows more mercy. God shows more sovereignty because he's working on Jonah now with a new tactic that only a sovereign God could even do. What grows faster than a chia pet? (laughs) A plant that God grows over a prophet in the ancient world. (laughs) Just instantly this plant grew up over him. Have you ever known an angry person? Nothing seemed to please Jonah through this whole book. Nothing. Show me one thing that he was pleased about. That's how angry people are. He didn't like being called to preach to Nineveh. He didn't like the storm. He didn't like the great fish, even though the fish saved his life. He didn't like being called a second time to preach to Nineveh. He didn't like the revival of Nineveh. Nothing made him happy. First time we read Jonah's happy, verse 6 makes this point very strongly. Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Why? Because after God showed compassion to a whole wicked city, God was finally doing something nice for Jonah. But there's more mercy from God to come. God was doing more than Jonah could ever imagine yet. Mercy that Jonah needs, but mercy that will not make him happy. Verse verse 7, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. What's God doing now? Verse 8, When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah, so he was faint, and he asked that he might die, third time, (laughs) and said, it's better for me to die than live, fourth time. Death wish four times over. What's God doing? He's showing mercy to Jonah to reveal to Jonah the truth about Jonah's own heart. In case Jonah missed it, in case we missed it, God showed more mercy by making it plain. Verse 9, God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. That's the fifth time. (laughs) It's a question showing Jonah that while he used to be angry at God, a worthy opponent, now Jonah had crumbled to become angry about a tiny plant and an even smaller worm. Jonah had become petty in his anger. 
And Jonah started by being angry at big things, but now he became angry at small things. And God was saying to Jonah, is this the way you want to look at life? Verse 10, the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being at a night and perished in a night. Verse 11, and should I not pity Nineveh, the great, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Jonah was glad about the plant, then very angry about the plant. Then God started talking with Jonah about the plant. And Jonah had very little investment. Plant was short-lived, not enough time to get attached with such deep passion to one plant. And yet Jonah had such passion for the plant, he fails to see the passion God could have for a whole city of people he created. who had lived there for years, and God providing the sun one day and the rain another day. God had a big investment in these people. God is trying to show this to, to Jonas. How the book ends. The question is over to us. You're studying the very words of God. You've become aware of the actions of God, the actions of his prophet Jonah. Who's right? You judge. You determine. Is God consistent? for saying that he would destroy Nineveh, but then giving them mercy? Or is God great because he showed great mercy to Nineveh? Should God have a heart for the people of Nineveh? Should we? What about the cattle? The cattle are not wicked. They're just doing what cattle do. Should God not show mercy to cattle since Jonah wanted to have mercy for one shade plant? How great is God's mercy? We look to the cross that's the measure of the length to which God will go to save the people of Nineveh. Jonah didn't understand God's mercy and the depth of it. Do we? Since we are recipients of God's mercy, how can we be anything different than merciful to others? God sends missionaries to reach us. We must do everything we can to send missionaries to the ends of the earth with his salvation message. Hymn uh, 433 in our hymn book. O God of mercy, God of might, in love and pity infinite, teach us as ever in thy sight to live our life to thee. That is the book of Jonah. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for your mercy, for your 